Good afternoon. Welcome to uh, Hudson Institute. Um, my name is Jonas Prolo Plesner, and I'm here to moderate and kick off this um, afternoon's debate on uh, Syria and Trump. Should I stay or should I go now? We had wanted to play also the sort of the class uh, theme music uh, for it, but uh, you will just have to sort of hear that in your head. I'm not going to sing for you. Um, but it sort of encapsulates our, our story today about um, US strategy in, in Syria. Um, I have drafted this uh, paper here as a scene setter for uh, today's debate. Uh, I think it's all out in the, um, in the front where you can get a paper copy and it's up on our website. Um, that one has a less sort of um, quirky title and is called uh, Post-Conflict Stabilization in Syria and the Potential Impact of US Military Withdrawal, which is um, one of the themes that we're going to talk about today. And it's part of my own sort of ongoing research project on um, uh, post-conflict stabilization in the ISIS-liberated areas in Syria and Iraq. So back to sort of the, the Clash theme song, Should I Stay or Should I Go Now? On uh, April the 3rd, Donald Trump surprised, surprised many, including um, his own military leaders, when he announced in what seemed like a new Syria policy, stating, I want to get out. I want to bring our troops back home. Uh, and Trump added that the U.S. had gotten nothing out of $7 trillion uh, spent in the Middle East over the last 17 years. And Trump has additionally also put the brakes on $200 million of U.S. stabilization funding in Syria. Um, a rumor uh, on that actually goes to Trump this because the funding uh, was labeled a donation in a Washington uh, Post article. So that actually shows sort of the power of the press and what words you use about things. Um, on that same day, April the 3rd, um, a month ago, the United States Institute of the Peace, uh, I was actually over there. They had a sort of um, brilliant setup panel of CENTCOM Commander General uh, Votel, who's responsible for the military campaign against ISIS, State Department uh, Envoy to the Coalition, uh, Brett McGurk, and USAID Administrator Mark Green. And they were sort of describing plans for a continued US presence in Syria, both to finish the job militarily and to build resilience against ISIS resurgence through post-conflict stabilization. So uh, for example, Votel told the audience, the hard part, I think, is in front of us, and that's stabilizing these areas, consolidating our gains, getting people back to their homes, and there's a military role in this. Um, so the divergence in views between sort of, Trump and Trump administration was pretty sort of, evident. Um, Trump's take, of course, appeals to his domestic political base and is in keeping with his campaign promises to avoid uh, giving out American taxpayer money for unnecessary wars reconstructing in the Middle East. Um, nevertheless, many in, the, in his administration and beyond sort of harbor reservations about a too hasty withdrawal um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the military job of defeating ISIS is not over. Um, Turkey's incursion into the north has made the end game harder uh, because many of the Syrian uh, Kurdish SDF forces who've otherwise fought ISIS valiantly have redeployed towards the north. And SDF has just taken up the fight against ISIS, but with an expected sort of slower tempo. Um, then another theme is, is Trump's insistence on burden sharing, which is a sort of consistent theme for him. Uh, I would even add for, foreshadowing the sort of current debate already back in 2013, Trump tweeted about Syria. Why are these rich Arab countries not paying us? Question mark. Um, and Trump has really been sort of working hard on that type of solution of, of for example, getting uh, allies and partners to pay more, and uh, has been trying to get Saudi Arabia to sort of step up um, so that the US would have 
uh, possibility to um, uh, withdraw from uh, from Syria. But so far, the, sort of the much touted Saudi Arabian-led forces and funding for Syria has not materialized. Another option could be that the UN uh, should do more. They've just gotten ra- access to um, to Raqqa, and um, but that, of course, entails the consent of both Assad and and thereby Russia as well. Um, European allies have stepped up uh, quite a bit on, particularly both on demining and stabili- stabilization. Uh, but it would not alleviate the shortfall if the U.S. sort of continues to freeze and, and stabilization and, and withdrawals. Um, this is all part of a sort of, for uh, Trump, of a uh, uh, no-nation-building uh, approach. In Iraq, that was enforced in that way where the U.S. did not provide public money for Iraqi reconstruction um, at the Iraqi Reconstruction Conference in February. Uh, on the other hand, the U.S. has, in Iraq, continued to um, contribute generously with both humanitarian assistance and stabilization. Um, let me just, for definition, mention that stabilization is a term, sort of a post-conflict stabilization, about the sort of quick fixes after conflict, such as demining, rubble removal, and getting electricity and water uh, flowing again. For an ISIS ghost town such as Raqqa, uh, the former capital of the terror regime, such stabilization is essential also for refugees to, uh, to return. And inside the administration, there's been a sort of effort to fence off stabilization from reconstruction and to move it away from the sort of no-go uh, nation-building restriction. Um, and that distinction for, was evident when USAID Administrator Mark Green at that same YouTube uh, conference that I um, mentioned earlier in early April talked about stabilization programs are more than just manifestations of American generosity. They are instead key components of our national security planning. Um, although Trump seems to have abandoned that distinction in Syria by freezing the stabilization funds, which are also used for, for um, demining and, and part of these sort of uh, quick fixes, um, which makes it possible for refugees to return. Um, so on stabilization in Syria is not only um, essential for refugees to return, but also sort of bulwark against the quick return of ISIS. Um, if the U.S. were to pull out very quickly, um, it would both lose options to, um, to curb Iran, it would lose options to influence a political solution in Syria, um, and both U.S. civilian advisors and allies need the U.S. military umbrella to continue the, the stabilization works. So as a sort of intro, I mean, there are really longer-term consequences to watch out for. Um, if um, Trump is really to sort of uh, pull out um, the, the U.S. military and uh, discontinue stabilization funding, um, there, uh, there are sort of instances of Obama when he was very quick to pull out of Iraq and sort of what um, uh, later uh, fateful sort of consequences that also had. So there's a lot at stake around how this is going to play out. Um, uh, over the coming months. So that's what I have uh, stellar panel here up with me to, um, to talk about. Um, on my left, I have uh, Marianne Jalabi, who is representative of the Syrian Opposition Council to the United Nations. Um, all the way out here to my right, I have Mohammed Abdallah, who is a Syrian human rights uh, and democracy researcher uh, and activist. And last but not least, I have my, my colleague, senior fellow Mike uh, Duran, who is uh, been an active voice on all issues uh, Middle East since, um, at least since you were in the Bush administration and here at uh, Hudson. 
So I would start with you, Mike, um, after my sort of scene setter and help us discuss your thoughts about sort of um, why or why not sort of uh, a US withdrawal from Syria would be um, in the national interest. And of course, include uh, one of the topics that's always first and foremost on your mind, which is Iran policy and how it would limit or, or change US uh, opportunities to uh, curb uh, Iranian regional influence and in Syria. Well, thanks. Uh, so I think President Trump, um, as you mentioned, his base um, is very skeptical of the Syria mission. And it's not just his base. So it's even, I would say, the American electorate writ large. There's real continuity between, on that level between President Obama and, um, and President Trump. Um, President Trump is afraid that Syria is going to become like Afghanistan, that uh, by the time he leaves office, whether it's in four years or eight years' time, we're still going to be in Syria with no, uh, with no end game in, um, uh, in, in sight, and that this is going to be, um, this is going to be held against him. Uh, and so his inclination is to, uh, is to, is to think in, in short term in, in, in that regard. And he's asking his advisors to give him the plan. And they're not doing it. I, I interpret that uh, the statement from early April when he said, we're about to get out, um, a little bit of electioneering in a sense, or you know, playing to, to his base. But I, I see it as a way of kind of challenging his advisors as well to come up with, uh, uh, with the plan. Um, as against that, there are the interests that you mentioned. And, uh, President, Ob uh, President Trump has been more inclined to compete with the Iranians in the Middle East and, and in Syria than, than, than President Obama. Um, not, as, not, uh, uh, not to compete with them necessarily militarily. It was very striking um, last month when uh, former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson came out with a policy statement saying it was a policy of the United States to counter Iran in the Middle East. And then General Votel, the commander of CENTCOM, went before Congress shortly thereafter, a week, two weeks after, um, after uh, Tillerson made his statement. And, and General Votel was asked what the U.S. military is doing to counter Iran in Syria. And he said explicitly, it's not a U.S. military mission to counter um, Iran and Syria. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, an inherent contradiction there. On the one hand, we're containing uh, Iran in the Middle East, but we're not containing it militarily in Syria, where it is expanding uh, militarily. So how can you have a containment policy if that's, uh, uh, if you have that contradiction? Um, but just because there's a contradiction doesn't mean there's not an inclination to want to, uh, uh, to want to contain um, Iran. And so that is one of the factors that's leading, one of the major factors that's leading uh, uh, the, the Trump administration to stay in, a factor pushing to stay in Syria, not necessarily to go contain Iran, but at least to, to prevent the territory in the middle Euphrates River Valley in particular that we're currently, um, that we're currently holding um, from becoming a Russian and Iranian asset. Uh, the other thing, the, the contradiction that they're, uh, that, they're, that they're dealing with is the fact that others will not step up and contribute, the, 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 the Saudis in particular, but not, but not only, to the reconstruction and stabilization of Syria if the United States is not committed. So 
the, the, the idea is, I mean, some people are thinking, well, we should pull out and let others do it. Well, others won't do it if the United States isn't, isn't involved. And the United States leadership is the absolutely absolute essential ingredient to ensuring that others are going to make the kind of commitment that the United States uh, wants them to make. So that's an, another kind of contradiction that they're having to, to grapple with. Um, there are two allies that uh, I think are at the forefront of their minds, uh, uh, or for simplicity's sake, let's just let's think about it in terms of two allies. Um, one is Turkey, and, and and one is Israel. With regard to Turkey, as and as you mentioned, Jonas, that the U.S. is fearful that if it pulls out, the Russians and Iranians will become the primary interlocutor between the Syrian Kurds and the and the Turks. I mean, we have to realize that we built, whether we call it that or not, we built a Syrian Kurdish statelet, uh, which was extremely threatening to to the Turks. And the Turks are hostile to the statelet that that uh, uh, that we built. Um, and we are uh, uh, we are. The guarantors right now of the security of the of, of the Syrian of the Syrian Kurds. If we leave, if we leave, they go to uh, uh, they'll go to the Russians and to, and and to the Iranians, and the Russians will then become the interlocutors with the with the Turks. Um, I think the administration understands, the military understands, that it wants the United States to be in that uh, 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 to to be in that position, uh, because. At stake in all of this is the international orientation of, of Turkey. Uh, if, if the Russians take over that relationship, uh, being the mediator between the Kurds of Syria and the, and the Turks, they will use it to pressure the Turks and detach the Turks from NATO, whether uh, not necessarily leave NATO, but they can, they can become a kind, of, um, uh, a kind of thorn in the side of the United States in, in, in NATO. Um, and so the only possible way to to prevent the the Turks from falling under the wing of the um, of the Russians or gravitating closer to the Russians is for the United States to stay there in um, in Syria. And similarly, there's an issue with the uh, uh, with the Israelis. Um, the Israelis are, as we know, you can see by reading the newspaper, they're very fearful about the rise of the Russian-Iranian alliance in in Syria. Primarily, the Iranian component of the Russian. Iranian alliance, but it comes as a package uh, because the Russians provide the air cover and the Iranians provide the the the, the ground troops, um, and that that uh, that contest between the Israelis and the and the Iranians is escalating. Uh, you know, it, it was come to light just recently. The Israelis took this uh, archive of the Iranian nuclear program from Iran um, in January or February, about a week after they took it to. To Israel, the Iranians sent an armed drone. This is back in February. They sent an armed drone into uh, into Israel. That could very well have been retaliation against the Israelis for taking the ar uh, the archive out. Um, there's been a couple of um, uh, there have been a couple of uh, tit for tat exchanges, um, quite significant ones between the Iranians and the and the Israelis since. And you remember just just last week there was that massive explosion in Hama when the uh, Iranians brought in uh, some possibly 200 anti-aircraft missiles to defend their positions against the uh, against the Israelis. So the Israelis have been humiliating the Iranians both by taking the archive out 
and by showing that they can attack them in, in Syria. The Iranian response is coming. The Iranians keep threatening it. They haven't done it yet. It's, gonna, it, 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 it's coming. So there could be a significant escalation there. Um, this, I think the, the Americans look at this in, um, uh, with, with, uh, as, as they do with everything in Syria with contradictory emotions. On the one hand, they fear a Russian-Iranian, I mean, Israeli-Iranian um, uh, contest, and they fear the reverberations for the, for the United States. Uh, on the other hand, they want to, the inclination is to support Israel against the Iranians, and it makes the consequences of a, an abrupt U.S. pullout working to the advantage of the Iranians and Russians um, all that much more um, uh, all that much more dramatic and detrimental in the long run to, to, to U.S. interests. Uh, so, you know, balancing all of those contradictory impulses, I think we're sort of muddling through um, supporting the supporting the Israelis uh, in terms of um, of giving them diplomatic backing for them to police their red lines, but not associating ourselves with their with with, with their um, uh, with their red lines, um, uh, trying to to keep our boys out of harm's way to the extent possible, but recognizing that we're also part of the mix. Um, so my own answer to all of this is that we should actually define. Israeli red lines as our red lines, as in the interest of the United States. That is, Israeli red lines are that you are, are regard uh, no attacks against Israel by the Iranians from Syrian territory, no transfer of strategic weaponry from Syria to to uh, from Iran through Syria to Hezbollah, no um, um, no uh, Iranian or Hezbollah forces in Syrian territory, just opposite the Israelis in the Golan. Um, we should announce that, that, that we support these red lines and they are in the American interest. And I think that would increase our leverage over the Russians. But I think that my recommendation will not win the day because the inclination of the military is to see that as an escalation and that, that will cause us more trouble rather than less. And it will work against the desire to get us out of there as soon as possible. Great, Mike. Just a quick follow-up before I on that. Do you see with the new Secretary of State Pompeo as a, a stronger uh, line on Iran? Could you see a push to sort of expand the military mission um, and to include sort of Iran in that in sort of the, for the American forces in in Syria, which is basically uh, the opposite of what Trump wants to pull them out? Uh, I'm, I, I would. Ex it wouldn't surprise me at all, but he will run into a brick wall in the in the form of uh, of the Secretary of Defense. Thanks. With that, I'll turn over to, um, to you, Mariam. And um, of course, as a representative of the Syrian opposition, I wanted your thoughts on all of this, but also in particularly on the whole question of um, a political solution, something that in former uh, Secretary Tillerson was a sort of a strong component of his sort of Syria strategy uh, for the US of supporting the, the UN-led Geneva format. At the same time, there's also the sort of competing format with Astana, with, which is led by the Russians, uh, the Iranians, and which includes the Turks. So um, yeah, so I, I wanted to have your thoughts on, uh, on that. Yes, thank you for having me here. Um, the Syri I, I want to bring it back. I, I really like listening to Michael now putting like a whole international perspective of what's happening to Syria. But I think what I want to do is bring it back to how we Syrians um, in Syria or Syrians feel about what's happening on the ground at what needs um, to happen in the leadership of the U.S. Because the U.S. has sidelined its leadership or is trying to give it over to people who are 
not willing to take over, like the whole burden sharing, the whole idea about there's somebody else who's gonna come step in and do it. There's no one else on, on, on this side. There's Iran and Russia on the other side who are stepping up and taking up the role to uh, boost this government to stay in power and to keep doing the atrocities it's doing. And um, I think what I wanna go back to is that a few weeks ago when the US um, strike in Syria, that was the second time ever uh, the Assad regime has ever um, gotten any you know, kind of a slap, you can call it maybe slap on the wrist. It was very limited. It was very um, cautiously done. It was arranged with everybody on the ground, a strike with no casualties. That was planned for over two weeks. Uh, but what I want to remind people here is that this is the, the Russians and the Assad regime are on the ground thinking that their next move is a military win. This is what they want. They want to take back over the country and get to a place where they are in full control. And us sitting back and not responding to that, like the US administration not responding to this takeover of um, the, the, the Syria with impunity, with the kind of atrocities that they've been creating, not just chemical weapons. Yeah, chemical weapons may be internationally illegal use of weapons, but that is 1% of the cause of death in, in Syria. What's happening on the ground is that the regime is using conventional weapons and illegal weapons, indiscriminate weapons, with the help and support of Iran on the ground, the Russians from the air, to uh, create mass atrocities just from the time that the U.S. had hit the strikes in, in uh, suburbs of Damascus in Ghouta, there has been over 400, over 400 people that have been killed by conventional weapons. There have been uh, over 150,000 people that have been displaced from their uh, neighborhoods and areas. And the regime now is moving into areas of Homs, that's another major city in Syria that's taking over again. So unless we see some kind of a leadership, a comprehensive clear and sustained leadership from the US to deter this government and its allies from uh, continuing the kind of policy they're continuing on the ground, I don't see any push that could happen for the political solution. Because this is a regime that understands only one language, and that's the language of force. And they will keep using this and going forward until there is um, a leadership that's taken by the US um, to stop this regime from continuing this tactic and be, I mean, I sometimes say it, bombed to come to the table because that's the only place, that's the only way that they're going to come and negotiate. And in connection to Astana, I want to say that Astana started because the US had taken sideline. And this is in continuation a little bit of the Obama policy also. When, you, when, when, when the US sidestepped, uh, Turkey went over to you know shake hands with, with the Russians because they needed to protect their own national security. They have their own interests in the region. So it created a whole other, which is a weird alliance of Iran, Turkey, and Russia. So when they started the whole Astana process, which is actually directly connected, supposedly at the beginning, they said it was a military, um, military de-escalation um, 
um, a strategy that is going to be helping the Syrians on the ground and trying to create um, a, a stable situation to create a political solution. And then they started actually talking a political solution in Astana. They handed over a constitution you know, to the rebels to overlook it and to give their input on it. That's when it felt like, no, there has to be something else done on a political track. And then the UN picked up, and Geneva started again. And now in, in round nine, We've done around nine, and it's still no tangible results because the 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 the, the strategy on the ground and the language on the ground is completely removed from what's happening in Geneva. That doesn't um, seem the right way to go. What we want to see, as 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 Syrians, as as the opposition, is that there has to be a political solution in the end. It can't be a military solution. There are a lot of countries that are involved. There are a lot of interests that are involved. And it's a geopolitical issue for the whole region. It's not just for Syria. The existence of Russia and Syria is connected to their existence in Ukraine, to their deals, to the, to the economic situation in the region, to their deals with the EU, with NATO, with all of that. But how could all of this be put together in a way that creates um, a sustainable solution for the future for Syria is to bring everybody to the table and to have that negotiation in Geneva, and to have people come sit in, in with, a, with a genuine and real interest in creating this kind of a transition. This is not going to happen by the regime. This is not something that the regime wants, because it's not going to work its own interest. So the only ones who are capable of doing this are actually the regime and uh, the, the Russians and the Iranians and maybe the Turks now through the Astana, like th th through them getting involved in the Astana process. So the way I, I, I would put it, just to, to sum it up, is that we need U.S. leadership on this, because if the U.S. does not take lead in this, others will not, as Michael, Michael very well put, put um, in his explanation. And um, in order to, to come to a solution with this kind of leadership, we need to bring this regime um, through their allies to the table to discuss a comprehensive solution. And comprehensive means relating back to the other policies. It's not just about like you know strikes and deterrence on the ground, but it also brings it back to this whole uh, stabilization funds that are going inside Syria, because as long as there is no support for the moderates on the ground, for people who are actually keeping the peace, people like the white helmets on the ground, um, there's creating a vacuum for others, for more extremist groups to take over, which is part of the um, security, international security, um, and the US security. And the other thing that also I want to talk about is that a comprehensive solution means also to differentiate between when we're talking about stabilization funds and reconstruction funds. Reconstruction funds, we have been talking about it should not be going through the government, because this will give the government um, legitimacy and rehabilitation um, to, to become part of the, the ones that are actually rebuilding Syria. And that is that is not going to help Syrians in the end. And also, I, I think this is what Mohammed is going to talk about also. There, this has to be also connected to the um, the atrocities that are happening, the crimes, war crimes that are happening on daily by basis by this regime, and the call for an accountability that this cannot, this kind of an impunity cannot continue because it is creating um, a set of a new world order of where any 
totalitarian government can actually do whatever it wishes on the ground to its own people and um, and just be let loose to keep on doing that, which we have seen where the ramifications of it has ended in Europe and like all over the region, the ISIS growth. And as you mentioned, ISIS has not, we have not gotten rid of ISIS fully yet in Syria. And there isn't only ISIS, there are a lot of other groups that are also rogue elements in Syria that need, need to be controlled. So I see no no end in sight unless there's some kind of a leadership that is coming forward by the US administration to push for this political solution and to stop the atrocities that are happening on the ground. Thanks, Mariam. Just a follow-up question on, uh, for you as well. So, if, But if you don't end up seeing this US leadership that you're um, uh, asking for, would for the Syrian opposition, would then dealing with Russia be an opportunity or possibility? We are actually in, in talks with everybody who can create some kind of a change on the ground. Like, we are very much in, like, as an opposition, we're in Turkey, we're in Istanbul, our headquarters are in Istanbul, and we're in constant dialogue with Turkey, and Turkey is directly connected with Russia. But the Russian um, regime, I want to call it, has proven that has no interest in protecting civilians on the ground. And no matter how much we will be talking to them on how much we, we Syrians will talk to anybody to, to try to create um, any kind of change on the ground that is keeping the, 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 the human rights concept, the, the international law respected, and that is not happening through Russia. We're hoping like it's the international, like a Western international community, like the US, who believe in human rights and who believe that there can be some kind of a democratic structure that will bring peace to the people on the ground. Who we want, we don't want another Qadirov, you know, in Syria. If we work with the Russians, we just shift from one military, you know, dictatorship to another dictatorship. That's not what we want. We want to shift to a democratic structure to a real trans transition. This is where the trick comes in with Russia. Sure. Yeah, um, that's a good segue on, on human rights and what happens for uh, individual Syrians on the ground. I want to transition to uh, Mohammed, and um, who I want to commend for leading the Syria Justice and Accountability Center here in um, in DC, but that works, of course, in and sort of out of Syria and documents um, war crimes as it takes place. So it's a sort of novel approach in, instead of what some of us have seen historically in. Uh, Yugoslavia and so on, you waited until sort of after the war and then you start uh, collecting evidences that you're doing this through social media, through other means on a sort of daily uh, basis. And so I wanted your sort of civil society perspective on um, at the beginning of the, the year and end of last year, there were some sort of positive thoughts about the escalation in Syria, the fighting was winding a little bit down. Then Secretary Tillerson was talking about how the de escalation zones would uh, sort of uh, work. So. I wanted your perspective from sort of the ordinary Syrians caught in these different zones, whether you're in the far north now in Turkey zone in Raqqa with uh, STS led and sort of with American stabilization money inside the regime. All your thoughts on on on, um, on how uh, it looks for an ordinary Syrian in 2018 and onwards. Sure. Thank you very much for having me. So it is really complicated to look on. Imagine a U.S. withdrawal from the eastern part of Syria where the U.S. and SDF has been uh, present without putting together a couple or thinking of the consequences and the concerns the average Syrians would, would really face. The first question comes to mind, who's going to fill this vacuum? 
leaving this vacuum to SDF, who's not going to be able to govern these areas at their own, that make them vulnerable to attacks from the Turks directly to take over this area, or handing the area to Russia and Iran and different, and different uh, basically, uh, power structures in these areas. That sets the stage for the next step, which is the elimination of Geneva track at all and reintroducing Suchi and Asetana tracks. If we look at what the US and France did with the recent Suchi conference, the US withdrew, said we're not going to go to Suchi. And France said we're not going to. So the, kind of, the conference kind of folded. President Putin did not attend. And then they kind of reduced the level of representation to Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister. And then the whole conference ended up being just a show of our ceremonial uh, environment celebrating the regime forces. What Russia did in response, taking over Ghouta and start attacking other places to acquire more areas and more territories in the ground to say, we control more areas in Syria. Let's get back to the negotiation table. So the more the Russians control and the Iranians control, there's no counterbalance there, then the more we exclude Geneva track and the more we actually go towards Asetana or Sochi or any other conference Russia and Iran will pull together. Um, the withdrawal from, the, from, from uh, eastern Syria would mean actually there's a vacuum and there's a competition there. Turkey is invited or not invited, there's still a big question uh, mark there, whether the Turks will be able to control this area at their own, or there's the, the talk about Arab and Islamic forces will be reintroduced to Syria, Egyptians or other, other nationalities. Egypt foreign minister spoke about sending troops, and then the foreign ministry said, we're not going to send anyone there. So it's a still a murky question, who's going to fill this, this vacuum? But with that vacuum uh, in place, that's going to not only impact the peace negotiation, Geneva track, but also it's going to impact the nature and the type of the post-conflict regime being introduced to Syria now. Because without the Western bloc balancing the negotiation in Geneva and introducing the demands for human rights, for civil society, for rule of law, for justice and accountability, for fair, uh, fair stabilization, return of refugees, there's a million really difficult governance questions facing these areas. And then you're going to be having a regime just equal to the regime in Damascus, if not worse, being introduced in the, in the eastern side. The missing ingredients, however, in all these things that the US is undermining the leverage they have by their military presence in eastern Syria. We have forces. The US killed Russians when the Russians tried to go and attack the US forces and the Kurdish forces in Derzor. And this is, and this is not precedent. This is new things. And we have leverage, and we can use this leverage. And I want to agree and disagree with Maryam's remark on the use of military force. It was slap and rest. It was limited. That's the military impact of the attack. But the political value of the attack is way beyond that. It means we can go outside the Security Council. Now, this time, it's not only the United States. We're bringing, uh, bringing UK and France with us. Three of the P5 are going out of the Security Council to do something to counter Russia, who's blocking the Security Council. And this is kind of reintroduced that level of balance we're talking about here, that the US, UK, France are basically standing up to the Russians and telling them, no, we're going to do things here. If you want to block the Security Council, we're going to do it from outside. So the missing ingredients here, how are we going to leverage all this power and put it to a diplomacy, to any, a peace negotiation? We don't hear much about that. We're going to withdraw. We're not going to withdraw. Geneva is there, Basuchi and Asitana. What's the faith of a peace agreement if the US withdraw prematurely from, from Syria? Let alone, of course, handing Syria to Iran the same way President Obama did with Iraq. Just leave quickly and hand everything to, to the Iranians. There's a the question of the refugees' return, which is a big question, and it's strategic questions for the European allies. 
Germany, Sweden, Netherlands, couple of European countries hosting a million and a half Syrian refugees, let alone two millions in Turkey, a million and a half between Jordan and Lebanon. How those people will be returned if this area is handed to the, to the Russians, to the Iranians, and therefore to the Syrian government? You can only protect those people if there is kind of independent forces there, if there's any forces that people will trust. Interesting remark is on the ground, when people being forcibly displaced from their areas, recently from, uh, from Homs and before from, from Ghouta, people are trusting the Russian military police checkpoints more than the Syrian government forces and intelligence because the Russians will treat them better than what the intelligence in Syria or the security forces uh, will treat them. Um, there's the question of the ISIS return. Did ISIS really, was ISIS really defeated? This is another big question mark. There's a new Qaeda-like or a new Qaeda-related group being reformed and reestablished now between Idlib and the other of the pockets where ISIS was left. So to declare mission accomplished and that we wiped out ISIS is just repeating the same mistake we've done in Iraq. Oh, we defeated Al-Qaeda with the help of the Sahwa and with the Saudis and we're walking out than to let Al-Qaeda reestablish itself in more extreme nature group, this time ISIS. God knows what the next group would look, would look like. So that's, that's another concern average Syrians would, would look at. And then the whole stabilization fund uh, story, I, I just was in Brussels in April 25th. I attended a side event on justice and accountability. But the whole discussion and discourse on funding reconstruction from Brussels, and this is Brussels too, the second year Brussels platform for funding and reconstruction between the UN and the EU. There's a still emphasis, although the departure of Secretary uh, of State Tillerson, the Europeans are still, still following the line of Secretary Tillerson. We're not going to fund any reconstruction in the regime areas. We're going to fund reconstructions only in the areas that's not controlled by the regime. And we're going to make sure this reconstruction fund leads to establishment of rule of law and good local council, good capacity of governance, and make sure there's fair human rights situation in this area. And that would facilitate the return of some refugees from Europe as well. So just withdrawing from, from Syria, imagine the scenario quickly. Russia and Iran controlling the area. Iran reconnecting Iran, Baghdad, Syria, Beirut, especially with the recent election results in Lebanon with Hezbollah taking over more seats in the parliament and defeating the Sunni powers, Al-Hariri and the Saudi allies. So emboldening this Shia uh, tunnel from, from Tehran to Beirut all the way. Um, the Russians taking more territories so they can just remove or ab abandon Geneva track and go with their version of the solution, peace negotiation in Suchi or Asitana. You get the reconstruction fund taken by a corrupted government who's going to use it more in, in bad ways. They're not going to rebuild any, anybody's house. There's no refugees will be back from Europe. And then we're going to ask our partners who's going to pay this money. It's, it's not about funding. It's not about money. So when President Trump makes that, and I agree here with Mike's remark, it's basically we need the U.S. leadership in the field here to make others pay and to make to encourage others to contribute their share, their share of uh, uh, their share of the of the reconstruction fund and the stabilization money. The final comment I have is more um, what the U.S. might do if Turkey took over these areas and start playing their own model of uh, local councils, bringing non-local people, empowering them as locals. And what, this is what's happening in the northern Kurdish area, in the Afrin area, kicking the Kurds out and bringing non-Kurdish people and empowering them as local councils. And just saying, oh, we're doing what the US is doing in other councils, in Raqqa and in Derzor. So why it's bad here, it's good there. So just making sure how all these powers will, will fight over this small piece of Syria, that, that territory in the eastern the river is important. 
and not creating the vacuum that's going to empower the bad guys really to have a bad peace deal and will have basically disaster impacts and all the other things, ISIS, refugees, reconstruction, stabilization. Thanks, Mohammed. Uh, a quick question on that. What if then if we actually see allies stepping up more, giving more stabilization, European allies, as you mentioned, you've been to the Brussels uh, conference on Syria, willing to, to do this, and in the areas that are now been liberated from, uh, from ISIS, but then sometime in October, uh, President Trump remembers this again, and it's like, hey, why haven't we, we pulled out? And then you see a pullout, and a lot of these stabilization money could basically also be wasted if then, even though we haven't insisted on human rights and not giving it to Assad, if then the Russians, Assad, acquire it because the U.S. basically leaves. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on this? So the good, the good thing when President Trump dropped his, his words on we're leaving Syria quickly, that his military was actually the first group who said, no, we cannot do this. It's a premature step. We need more time. When he asked what, how long time, he was, he was given an answer, a couple of months to a couple of years. And he said, I don't hear about this in six months, which I don't believe the Pentagon or the military folks will leave in six months. So if you look also, this is what comes from our field team on the ground, how many military bases has been established in this small area, how many air forces bases or air bases has been established, although the Pentagon calls them temporarily military, temporarily staging facilities, they are capable air bases to fly drones and to carry on uh, operations. Specifically on the war against ISIS, for, for the first time, the U.S. just used their air, aircraft carriers from the sea. And this is in response to Turkey delaying the approval to use the base there and also to show that actually we're fully independent here and capable of carrying this at our own without really regional allies, which also send messages to the, to the Europeans, to the Turks, and to the regional power that we're here full scale. So after all these, like basically spending and these all resources and investing in the stabilization in the region, it's gonna be very difficult to imagine the withdrawal. But to answer your question directly, I don't think the US can broker a deal with the Turks to come to the region and have good terms there. I don't think the US would, should let Iran and Russia control the deal. And yes, a premature withdrawal will mean basically wasting all the efforts the US have spent in the last year and a half from defeating ISIS till today. Thanks, let me um, open it uh, more up here. Mike, you had a lot of uh, interesting comments in, uh, in your initial remarks um, and wanted to um, pick up maybe on, on burden sharing when you were talking about that um, you basically need the U.S. as part of this. And that's, I think, just as it has a broader point as well. How does the U.S. best make allies step up? Is it by actually doing more or is it by, by pulling back, which is a sort of eternal uh, question on both on defense budgets, on missions, and so on. So, um, and you seem to have your answer, but I wanted you to sort of go sort of deeper in, into that because at the same time you have a president who's really insisting on a new type of of burden sharing and, and other allies uh, should do this. So what's sort of really the best way for the U.S. to, uh, to achieve that, for others to do more? I think, uh, I think they have to walk a line. And we, I think we have to recognize, first of all, that, um, that we have interests in Syria. We, we didn't get there by accident. And there's a struggle for regional mastery going on in, in the Middle East and the epicenter is Syria, that we, America has a, um, that has a, a problem in looking at the, at, at the Middle East like everybody else does. I mean, we are, because we regard Syria as completely, as, as a country in which we have no interests. This is a long story 
with Syria. I, I, I saw this very up close when I was in the, in the Bush White House, actually, long before the, the George W. Bush White House, long before the Syrian civil war began. Uh, Syria was always an afterthought because we don't, we don't have any major, we, 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 it's, it's not an ally, we don't have any major economic interests there. Um, and the, the thought is always, well, others should take care of Syria. Well, now Syria is the center of everything in the Middle East. I mean, the, the contest that's, uh, that, that's going on there. And the fact, that we are, the fact that we're there and the fact that we're reluctant to leave is a, um, is, is a recognition of that fact. But intellectually, we have not taken the, the, next, step, the next step forward and, uh, and, and seen it for what, seen Syria for what, for what it is. So we're always trying to think, oh, Syria, how can I get away from it? How can I avoid making the decision? And everything we say about Syria is not true for that reason, because we're actually, we're actually um, managing a contradiction that we haven't admitted to ourselves. All the statements that we make are, uh, are, are false. We don't think they're false. We think we're saying the truth when we say them, but they're, uh, they're not true. For example, um, the, the, uh, the use of force against, uh, against Assad for chemical weapons. Um, I actually agree with both Miriam and Mohammed about the use of force. It was, uh, it was actually far too little to actually change the, the military balance. In fact, we, we rewarded Assad for the use of chemical weapons because he and the Russians, they have, and the Iranians, they had a, a specific military goal uh, for using the chemical weapons. It wasn't just to terrorize. They want to clear Ghouta, which is where the most significant Damascus-based opposition group is. So this is a strategic goal of theirs. And they calculated, well, maybe the Americans will actually carry out a reprisal against us. And they made the calculation. They thought, well, whatever the Americans do, it'll be enough that we can weather it. And in fact, it was enough that they could weather it. So we, we give ourselves credit for changing the political uh, environment around the use of force, which in fact we did, but he still got what he he still got what we wanted. So I think the key here is calibrating the use of force so that it sends a commitment, it sends a signal of commitment to our allies, and it sends a signal of to the Iranians, the Russians, and Assad that things that they hold dear will be lost if they don't work with us politically. The only way you get the, only way you get the political, you know, the, the Obama administration had this mantra, there is no military solution. Um, and therefore, we're not going to use our military. Well, the minute the Russians and the Iranians saw that, that we're not going to use our military, they said, you know what, there is a military solution. And they, and, and, and they went to achieve it. So the only way that we can convince the Iranians and the Russians that there's no military solution is if we use our military in such a way to prevent them from, ha from, from seeking a military, uh, a, a military solution. So you have, to put, you, have to put, you have to calibrate the use of force so that you threaten your enemies seriously, your adversaries seriously, and so you send a commitment to your allies that is convincing. And then you turn to them and you negotiate with them, your allies. And you say, this is what we're doing, and we're willing to keep up at this level, but you have to do X, Y, and Z. Otherwise, the American people aren't going to buy it, and I'm going to have to. And, 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 and I have to you have to minimize the commitment of US forces on the ground, because the American public does, is not going to support this. And, and every president is, is, is aware of that. So you have to ask others to step up. But we have to be there. Only the United States 
can set the political goal, the, the, the strategic political goal, and can assign roles and missions. No other party can possibly do that. And, and, can, and can mitigate between all the different interests among the allies, because the allies don't agree with each other, right? The, 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 the Turks have interests, the Israelis have interests, the Saudis have interests, uh, and, and they don't all agree with each other. We're the only ones who can mediate between all of them. Um, so, recently you end up in something that's not too similar to uh, Libya, 2.11, of a leading from behind type of mission, or? No, you, you, there's no such thing as leading from behind. You can, you can only lead. You can, you, can, you can minimize, you can mitigate the risk of leading, but you ha there's no, there is no uh, substitute for American leadership. There just isn't. Maram, I wanted to turn to you and, and talk about uh, stabilization and, and what it does on the, on the ground. Um, and because you, you put forward a sort of defense uh, of that, and I think the two of us can easily agree on that here. It's sort of my research project. But again, it's something that's sort of been increasingly questioned from, from sort of uh, Trump's sort of instinct of uh, no nation building. And so I wanted you to elaborate a little bit more on your defense and also think about if, if you're sort of over here in this political landscape of how do you then convince about that this is very sort of short term, time limited, that this is not sort of the beginning of a new Afghanistan where the US is uh, with allies deployed for, for decades. Um, in in basically a nation building process. Yeah, I um, I want to say that we we're looking for a comprehensive solution for Syria, and the component, the military component that Michael talked about, and the human rights and and the negotiations that Hamad talked about needs to be complemented by the the kind of money that's going on the ground to be specifically going to the right places to keep that. Um, nation still that we're hoping that will be the nation that will take over the transition. One of the questions that we keep being asked is that, oh, what is the alternative to Assad? And the thing is that there has been this messaging put forward is that it's the, this dichotomy where you have either ISIS extremists or you've got the Assad regime, and that's not true at all. There is so much that is happening on the ground in Syria, not just, again, I'm not, forget about the diaspora, forget about all of the different other groups that are outside. There is so much work that's being done inside Syria with the local councils, with the civil society, with the women groups also, I want to say, that is, I am part of one of the founders of the Syrian woman political movement on the ground. And we have um, direct contacts to groups that are doing a lot of the keeping the fabric of society together, keeping the fabric of, of the social structures together on the ground. And unless there is uh, funding that is going down to, to these groups to keep this kind of stabilization, it becomes very difficult for people not to leave. For people, the moderates, the, the ones who are keeping um, all of the different services going on the ground, delivering the aid, doing all of the medical supplies and the support on the ground, all of the, all of the, uh, um, the real everyday today work that's being done on the ground needs, needs funding, needs support. We're talking about, yes, uh, the political high-level military solution, but once that comes into effect, where is it going to go in the end? Like, who are you going to count on on the ground to do this? Therefore, it is, becomes very important that civil society, including people who are actually 
Like the white helmets, why is the white helmets? Because it has gotten a lot of bad rep from the regime and the Russians saying they're, you know, a terrorist organization. These guys are the ones who run to uh, an area that gets bombed. And the way the regime does the bombing is that they bomb first and they destroy a building or, or wherever they want to hit, you know, service center, hospitals and schools are their favorites to hit. So the, the white helmets, the, the civil defense groups come in to save the people from under the rebels and this is, this is their task. They come to actually support the people on the ground. The regime hits in 10, 15 minutes later the same exact location because they want to kill more people who are coming to save these ones who are under the rubble. The White Helmets, this organization that has been supported by the US and many other, many other countries, but stopping destabilization means stopping the funding to people who run to these areas. The second, knowing that there will be a second bombing coming in, they run to the area and they still save people. We need these people to continue on the ground. Because these are the ones who are actually creating the, 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 the foundation, the ground for what can come and happen later on. And I want to mention, just because I'm going on this tyrant about civil, civil society, is that before the, the, the revolution, before 2011, there were about 700, maybe Mohammed can correct me you know, on my numbers, maybe about like 700 civil society organizations that existed in Syria. There were 23 million people in Syria, and no longer because of the refugee crisis, but there were only 700 civil society, and they were all overlooked and controlled by the government. Since the revolution started, there has been at least 2,500 civil society organizations that have sprung up locally and have taken on the burden of keeping the work on the ground happening. These are the people that the INGOs come and work with and do partners with. These are the people that when Security Council resolution did you know cross-border and cross-line for delivery of aid and medical supplies that they made partnership with them as implementers. And therefore, it becomes very important that when we're looking at Syria in, in, in a comprehensive way, that we look at all of these different elements that once you start creating a solution and, and the, the, a political, there is some kind of a political transition happening on the ground, that these groups are still functional and strong and are there to able to take the responsibility and go forward in rebuilding and reconstructing the country. And this again relates to the national security, or the international security, the US security, because these are the ones who are keeping the families. These are the ones who are educating children. There are three million children that are in school age in Syria that are not going to school. What happens to these children? You've got all of the ISIS camps, you've got all of the, you know, the extremist camps that are happening. How do you prevent this kind of extremism from not developing? Is by supporting the other side, the, the moderates, the people who aren't creating real change and keeping the social fabric together. There has, they have to be supported and, and kept in, in, in check that they are doing their job on the ground. That's a really important point that notwithstanding war, there are still civil society organizations that are expanding and um, and, and need support. I was going to add one more question, which is sort of a little bit broader on uh, uh, from the U.S. to Syrian opposition and a political solution would be the Kurdish issue. I mean, um, the fact that the Syrian Kurds are not sort of represented together with the opposition in, in the Geneva talks, and they now, of course, um, through uh, uh, sort of SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, 
Um, and therefore, as we talked about earlier in the panel, there's of course a big interest should the US withdraw from Russia to sort of um, take over sort of patronage of the Syrian Kurds. So I was, I was interested in, also because it's, it's a big part now, 30% of the Syrian territory that's, uh, that's been liberated from ISIS, which is basically on the SDF control. How is Syrian opposition you would see sort of uh, working together with, with the SDF and sort of... Um, when we're talking Kurds, this is one of the things that, uh, one of the issues that are complicated about Syria is that there are so many different Kurds in Syria. There are 12 Kurdish parties in Syria. And it is not true that there are no Kurdish representation within the Syrian opposition. The Syrian opposition has um, uh, many different groups, and one of the representations, big representation as part of it, is the Kurdish National Council mm -hmm. that we have representation from, who are actually persecuted against by, when we say Kurds, like the SDF, we're talking pay a day. Yeah. We're talking the, PI, the, the pay a day. YPG. The YPG, which is connected. This is what makes it complicated because those have actually connected to the PKK. Their, their, their national interest is connected somewhere else outside Syria. And we have seen sometimes, like for us, the, the, the opposition is that we want to keep Syria intact. We want to keep all of the different components of society to be part of it. We want to create peace with everyone. It's not just the Kurdish minority that exists, you know, or the Kurdish component that exists in Syria. There's, if you have got the Alawites, the Druze, the Christians, the Circassians, the, so many different groups that are existing on the ground. But the Kurdish issue or the Kurdish element has taken this big precedent because of this connection to other groups outside Syria that they're getting their affiliation from. We're willing to sit and talk. We're even, like, I, I know that our opposition has been talking about, because they have been talking about, like, a federalism, a sort of some kind of a federalism that we can create. There's like we're open to anything that will keep Syria um, intact. That we're not going to divide it and partition it up into territories um, that are not going to serve the Syrian population, like as a whole. But everyone in Syria, as the Kurds, are welcome and are part of the the the, the Syrian opposition. And this is something very important to remember because one of the things that has happened now, like, and I see, like, it's very sad what's happening, like, in places like Afrin in in Syria, where the the Kurds are put into one group or one category, which is not true because the Kurds themselves, like, a lot of Kurdish groups have suffered at the hand of the payday, and this has to be addressed. And we have to look, like, with not the double standard, we have to look at all of the violations that are happening in Syria, that are happening in the hands of anyone on the ground to be kept in account, and this is accountability center, everybody, everybody's violations on the ground, we need to keep records of it, and we need to keep accountability so that these atrocities will not be happening again and again as we're going forward and trying to create a political solution. Yeah, in general, I, I think the Turkish campaign and Afrin have made things much worse. It divided up the Kurds and the Arabs more, and incited the violence and the level of tension between the Arabs and Kurds and somehow. And also, what Turkey tried to do by resettling those who were displaced from Ghutan, from Damascus, and Afrin, and the houses of the Kurds, is specifically bad move. Because not only, it's kind of, the, the, the Turks kind of using a wide brush for labeling all the Kurds as separatists, and they are dangerous to the Turkish national security. And also trying, because the Arabs, the Arab refugees and the displaced from Ghutan, they don't have a place to go, really. This is the place they were offered and they will be 
perceived by the Kurds as those basically group coming to kick them out of their territory and take over their, their place. So the demographic changes again, which is the refugees and the resettled people has no really influence over it. Like some of those refugees were pushed to Al-Bab, some of them were pushed to Idlib, some of them were pushed south to Dara, and some of them were pushed to Afrin. So there's that one. And I think the opposition has missed really a big opportunity to bring the bigger Kurdish component. It's true, there's 12 Kurdish party. I, I'm, me and my family have been very close to the Kurds, actually. Uh, and my father grew up in Kamishli. He speaks Kurdish fluently. And he was one of the people who mitigated in the 2004 when the government tried to crush Kamishli after the protest uh, against, against the government there. Um, but in, in general, I think it is true with all this diversity in the Kurdish groups, the YPG, YPD, whether we agree or disagree with their national agenda or their national interest, it, it is one of the biggest groups there. And just recognize the fact they have their interest. That's not aligning, aligning actually in line with the interest of the opposition or the interest of Turkey or the, any interest of the region. And this is one of the files where actually Turkey and Iran will agree exactly, like, we're not going to work with you. We're going to block you from doing your own state. That's what makes Turkey, Turkey very upset that the US endorsed this component out of the Kurds and the, and the SDS forces. I think the opposition missed a big opportunity, really, to bring those Kurds in. Uh, try to digest some of their demands, try to control some of their demands a little bit and manage their expectations and bring them in to some of sort of a national, uh, national umbrella or under one national group. If you look across the border with, with Iraq, the Kurds there, they had high expectations and they just let them face their high demands and they paid a bad price actually after the referendum there. So I don't think any, re any, any country or power in the region would allow a Kurdish state, that's something where Iran and Turkey ally with. And also, the United States doesn't want to see this. So when, when the special envoy to Syria, Stefan de Mastura, or even the Secretary General Guterres said, there's fears now Syria will be divided, he does not mean specifically a Kurdish state in the north that imposes national security threats to Turkey. It's more about the territories controlled by Russia and Iran versus the regime versus the opposition. Oh, that's a very... Um a uh, very good point to uh, to bring in because particularly sort of the the U.S. One of the things I've been um, toying with is, of course, could the U.S. use the fact that it's still on the ground in the SDF-controlled territories, for example, also to ask the YPG to sort of delink more? For you were saying external influence is basically PKK, which is also what Turkey is all obsessed about. Um, because if the U.S. doesn't do it again, then we would, as we've already mentioned earlier, we'd probably have a situation where we'd have sort of the Russians, and we saw that a little bit in the Astana process with their first the Russian draft for a constitution, which has a sort of very extensive uh, Kurdish autonomy, which is rare because Russians are normally not that interested in autonomy when you look at sort of the way they run uh, the Russian Federation. So, so clearly there was an idea there to sort of to, um, but I'm, I'm also think Mohammed's point of saying that the Syrian opposition somehow has to be very interested in, in, in doing this, and there could be a sort of U.S. Uh, strategic incident of using that of saying because right now the whole thing is just saying this is all military. These are a good fighting parties. They've been fighting ISIS, so that's that's great, and that's the military, and it's completely confined to that. And that's of course hasn't worked with Turkey. That keeps saying that doesn't ring true. There, there's going to be a demand by these guys at the end of the road, and you're going to help them sort of build a Kurdish statelet, as you called it, uh, Mike. So again, but I, uh, I really think there's also seemed to be a lot of complacency around this, the fact that the, the YPG are there. They are good fighters. When you talked about 
that the only thing the Assad regime respects is force. I mean, these are actually some of the ones that have been fighting inside Syria with. Um, so yeah, so I wanted to throw that. That those are some of my thoughts. Again, back here to I don't know, Mike, if you wanna uh, jump in and whether the U.S. again could sort of also beyond Iran sort of um, use the relations they have now with uh, SDF for a political solution. Uh, I'm a heretic on this because I think the key is Turkey, and the, I think the the U.S. The U.S. strategic interest is to is to keep the Turks as close to the United States as possible, and um, I think that the, the build the the building up of the uh, of the of the YPG, which is the PKK, has is the thing that has most alienated Turkey from the United States, and it's the thing that has most driven the Turks toward the Russians, uh, and so I think we need to mitigate that. Uh, obviously, we're, I mean, we're a little bit. We're more than a little bit pregnant on the issue of uh, of building up an autonomous area for the Kurds in in Syria, uh, but I think that so I don't think that, that we can totally abandon that. But I think it has to be balanced against what we owe our uh, what we owe our our Turkish ally, and the, the your idea of decoupling the Syrian Kurds from the YPG is a good one, but it's impossible. To do, if the United States the is sending, is if the United States is sending a, a message that it's getting out, yeah, because right? everyone's just waiting us out right now, and then they'll do whatever they want after we leave. Yeah, that was basically going to be my next question to the whole panel: is that even though we've given a lot of good arguments up here for why you could uh, stay from Iran to stabilization to the political solution, um, is there an element of self-fulfilling prophecy that at the moment you say that you're getting out, it already means perhaps that the uh, uh, SDF, the Syrian uh, Kurds in YBD, are reorienting towards Russia, saying they're the ones that are going to stay, uh, Iranians that are, that are there on the ground. Um, so that you could even say that even then, if you then added sort of the whole stabilization work again, it could be lost in the sense that if you, if you know that at some point the staying power just isn't there, then you've already sort of uh, called your game. Mohammed, what do you think? This, this is precisely an important point because one of the outcomes of the U.S. withdrawals could have been negotiation with Russia and Iran, so everybody withdrawal from Syria, and for a national peace agreement, be it uh, with Geneva, with Asetana, with heavy U.S. presence and balanced agenda. But now everybody knows the U.S. is leaving anyway. Like, why would negotiate with you if you're leaving? So we heard this from your president, and and so we kind of lost one of the, our cards, kind of showed our cards to our the other players, like, oh, we're leaving. And now it tells actually the forces on the ground, the, be it the YPG and, and other forces, like, here's the two countries who might stay and will stay longer than the United States go and negotiate with them. And that's precisely making Turkey uncomfortable because from one side, the US kind of flooded and parachuted arms and the YPG and the Kurds. That is not a pleasant story to Turkey, but also, leaving those Kurds in the middle will push them directly to go work with Russia, and the Russians will only manipulate the Kurds and the Turks both. Like, we'll, we'll keep you safe, we're not going to allow Turkey to attack you, or we'll let Turkey go into Afrin, and that's what the Russians did. At some point, the Russians prevented the, the Turkish air forces from flying in Afrin, so the campaign kind of folded at the beginning, but then they give them a green light to, to, to proceed with that. Um, so with the, whole, with the whole stay or not stay uh, situation, the U.S. needs to account for keeping a good alliance and partnership with the Kurds, not only because of the use and the necessity of using them against ISIS, because 
when you have a strong ally on the ground, you have a voice and a seat on the table of the negotiation. But the U.S. doesn't have any other foothold, actually, uh, in security. And also keeping Turkey equally close, because that's our NATO ally and one of the strategic forces in the region. Can I jump yeah. in this also a little bit? We're talking about Kurds and Kurdish and PYD. P PYPG. I'm confusing always the letter in the acronyms. Um, I want to remind that that all of these issues, as from from my stand when I'm looking at it, is that it can be dealt with and worked with once we have some kind of a force for transition happening for the country. Because all of these issues will be um, issues that will be on the periphery and we're dealing with for on a long-term basis. Because unless we find a solution for Syria as a total, we're going to keep talking about, you know, Raqqa, Deir Zor, Afrin, Mimbij, like who has this control over this area, this area. Because now the way there is a de facto kind of control areas in the, in, in, in the country. So unless there's some kind of a push, and coming back, maybe this is like the Syrian opposition perspective and that I'm living all the time, is that unless we start some kind of a transition on the ground where we're changing this, this regime that has behaved with impunity and going for a military um, solution, not alone, they can't do this alone, with the help of the Iranians on the ground and with the Russians from the air, they will not be able to, 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 to continue. Therefore, we need to work, the, the US and the international community with the leadership of the US, need to work with the Russians and Turks, the Iranians, and all of these people that are involved in Syria to create some kind of a first steps through Geneva, through a different you know, format, through whatever that we can push forward, and we prefer that it is Geneva, of course, because that's where we feel the better transition can happen. But whatever can create this this this, this wheel of, of starting some kind of a change in Syria, then I believe, like all of these, like the areas of control, the Kurdish issue, like who's controlling what areas, like all of this demographic change that has been taking on the ground. Now think of Idlib. Idlib has now like about three million people. It used to be less than half a million before all of the demographic change started to happen. There is this trend that is happening in Syria where we're pushing people who we don't like in this area who have been living there for thousands of years. We don't like them here anymore. Just put them up to the north because they're not they're not aligning themselves with this regime or because they supported this kind of you know military group that was on the ground or the brigade. We need to calibrate our, 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 our strategies that are happening in Syria not, and not have each country deal with it. And that's not going to happen unless you have somebody leading it. And there's no leading from behind, like Michael said, and I like that, is that you need to have somebody who's saying, OK, we need to create this transition. And then all of those other things we will deal with as fine. But dealing with it as a separate file on the side is going to just keep on going and going back. Yeah, we support them this day. We, they're a strategic alliance for us with payday today, but maybe not tomorrow. And then we keep changing and changing. Like, what is our interest like right now in this area or this area? And I feel that it has to be a whole solution for Syria in order to arrive to a better, to a better, to a better solution for all of these different problems. That's a good segue to also opening it up to all of you. Um, so I'll collect uh, questions, and we will have a question to the panel. So uh, let's start over here. Uh, Lukman Faili. Uh, 
Panelists have not talked about the Iraqi dimension of the Syrian situation. Uh, they will have an election next week. Uh, is there any issues to worry about in relation to the interdependency between them and specifically from the U.S. point of view? Thanks, Shuri. Do you want to? I can, I yeah. can make, make a few comments. One, that the amazing regime that Nouri al-Maliki established in Iraq, the sectarian regime, and uh, basically over-dependency on militias, that sectarian militias did not really present a viable governance element to the most of the residents in Iraq. In Iraq. And that's, therefore, when ISIS starts storming to, uh, to, to Mosul and to other cities, not through that, oh, a thousand ISIS hero managed to defeat the whole Iraqi military. No, the Sunnis, they don't want to defeat ISIS or fight against it because they wanted anybody, just the devil, to come and kick Nouri al-Maliki out. And if you look and some of the WikiLeaks cables came from the US embassy in Baghdad that Stephen Hadley was telling President Bush Nouri al-Maliki is a sectarian guy. He changed, uh, shifting the, the whole structure in the government and he packed Baghdad with all those pro-Iran militia leaders and there's over-dependency in militias. And this has been the trend. Now, Maliki was reintroduced to the system, and now if you look at the elections and the assassination campaigns that for anybody who posed a threat to that pro-Iran bloc in Iraq, there's definitely fear and concerns inside Syria that the more right-wing pro-Iran government in Iraq will mean, and already we have lots of al-Hajj al-Shaabi, the popular mobilization forces, are fighting in, in, in Syria. And the sectarian element of that conflict, the more sectarian uh, elements, pro-Shia, Shia militias coming from Iran, coming from Iraq, the more this will invite for Sunni extremists, and the Sunni extremist version, we've seen it, ISIS. So if you want to eliminate ISIS, the military battle is extremely important, kicking ISIS out, destroy their military capabilities, but also try to address the root causes of establishing and, uh, and uh, basically the growth of such extremist groups, which is the presence of other extremist ideology that invites the others to, to exist. So Iraqi election is definitely a point of concern. Unfortunately, there's no much influence to be, to be practiced there. Even the US seems kind of give up on, on Iraq and might correct me on, on this. If you I want, sorry. I, I don't think they've given up on Iraq. In, from the military point of view, I think it's, um, it's kind of the opposite that, with regard to what I was saying about um, Syria being an afterthought, the U.S. military, when it looks at the Middle East, tends to focus on Iraq because of all of the investment um, in, in blood and, tr and treasure in, 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 in Iraq. Um, and um, the, the, uh, the, the strategy um, of, of countering Iran in Iraq is one of sort of um, holding on to positions in the state and society that the Iranians don't control and supporting them. It's not actually taking territory back from the, from the Iranians. The same thing is true in Lebanon, uh, where um, the, the Iranians are quite happy to take up new positions in, in, in Lebanon, um, but the U.S. is afraid of destabilizing. So there's a fear of destabilizing in Iraq, fear of destabilizing in, in, um, in Lebanon. And a lot of that mindset then transfers over to Syria, um, where we get this incredibly, you know, in, in incredibly, um, uh, incredible fine-tuning of the use of force so as to not upset anybody, uh, because we're afraid that it'll break up this whole, uh, this whole system. But as I say, it's not, it's, we, they call it a counter-Iran strategy, but that's not what it actually is. Gentlemen down here, and then up here afterwards. Yeah, down here. 
Uh, thank you. Uh, I have a very narrow question for Mike. Relates to the Russian uh, incursion into uh, denied territory and the instantaneous and very bloody uh, punishment by the U.S. of that. Uh, what do you what do you read into the takeaway from that incident? What message does it send? And should we be expecting some kind of uh, response from Russia? Uh, it goes to what I was saying before, but it's uh, like the use of force against Assad. It's very dramatic. Um, it shows uh, uh, awesome military capabilities by, that the United States has um, and changes the, the, the political context because President Obama schooled the American people and the world in the non-utility of American force uh, the inability of America to do these things, and uh, if it did actually do them, then how counterproductive they would be. So on the one hand, it undermines all of that, but it does not send a message to the Russians or the Iranians, um, the message that we wanted to send. Uh, and that is because it was, th that use of force was entirely um, in the service of policing red lines. Um, they were probing, the Russians and the Iranians were probing uh, because we have sent a message about the, of ambiguity about our position, they were probing to see if they could go take the oil fields in, in Deir ez-Zor. Um, and in, the, in support of uh, force protection, of protecting our own force and the forces of our allies, we went and we annihilated them. Um, but this was not a, this, there was no offensive aspect of this. It was a purely defensive maneuver. And in fact, as General Mattis just said uh, uh, recently, we called up the Russian commander and alerted uh, through the, we have a deconfliction line and we call uh, military to military and we called up the, our military called up their military and said these guys are organizing and moving toward us, are they yours? And the Russian military commander said no and then, then General Mattis gave the order to, uh, or the commander on the ground, I don't know who it was, gave the order to annihilate them. Um, so there was a there was a there was a coordination with the Russians about this. Now, of course, they were these are the Syrian equivalent of the little green men in Ukraine. They were Russian assets, uh, but the but the Russians denied them, and it was only after the Russians denied them that we annihilated them. So we sent a clear message to the Russians that if you move to really change the status quo and threaten the forces directly under our uh, that that are under our direct support we will take action. But we have not put any of those military assets and that awesome capability in the service of stopping the Russian and Iranian advances in other, in other areas. It's interesting to me that, uh, that you know, it was around about the ex exact same time that the, uh, that the Iranians probed the Israelis with that armed drone and the Israelis responded by attacking the Iranian base in the Syrian desert. I look at that. And I say, wow, look at the capabilities that the Israelis showed and a willingness actually to, um, uh, uh, to, to um, threaten the Russians militarily, which is quite awesome, actually. I mean, it's quite, it's quite startling. And then well, there's what we did. But both of those actions were taken in support of red lines that we were announced. And they, they ran in parallel, but they were not coordinated. I look at that and say, what if we coordinated? What if we had a coordinated plan to contain and degrade Iranians. It doesn't have to be George W. Bush, invasion of Syria, regime change, and so on, but contain and degrade militarily, and we work together with the Israelis. 
I think that would send a really serious message to Tehran um, and to Moscow. But for all those other reasons I said, uh, the fears about Iraq, fears about Lebanon, fears about staying in Syria, fears about getting involved in a conflict that has no end, uh, people don't want to take that step. I actually think we would get, we would have a better chance of getting what we want politically in Syria so we could get out if we did behave that way. But fear of, fear of the opposite is what's going to keep us from doing it. We have over here. I'm a Peter Humphrey, intel analyst and a former diplomat. It's a little nutty to bomb a, a known chemical weapons complex on 10 days warning. I'm sure that every computer file cabinet and major equipment was moved out of there during those 10 days. If you don't bomb by midnight of the day of the attack, it's kind of pointless. Um, I wonder if we could think outside the box a minute and propose the concept of a multinational force 4,000 Emiratis, 4,000 Saudis, 4,000 Egyptians, 4,000 Turks, 4,000 Americans, 4,000 Brits, and create a 25,000-man army to, to stabilize eastern Syria and make it profoundly clear that Assad has no chance of reconquering the entire country militarily. Then he is forced to the uh, bargaining table. Thanks. Do you want to start out with that? Um. No a, need for uh, boots. There's a lot of troops in Syria. Yeah, no needs for boots on the ground. Like we just like was established by my colleagues here, that it seems that the the military capability that the the U.S. has command over inside Syria is pretty striking, and also all other um, militaries that are based in you know the mediterranean you've got the uk you, the the french you've got the coalition of the willing that got rid of isis there is if it's it doesn't i don't think it needs the will to bring in all of those different troops there has been when the will for creating a military um difference on the ground this has been used you saw kobani we saw in Sanjar, we saw in what happened to, with ISIS. So I think this could still be done in a way that's limited, that's precise, that's sustained from the air to bring this regime and its allies to the negotiating table. I'm um, all positive, but I mean, I'm, I'm personally a little bit sort of uh, at least see some, some options in that opportunity, both because over here, it would apply to demand for, for increased burden sharing, which is, of course, why uh, Trump has had such a focus on sort of the Saudi Arabian solution, both of, of sort of paying and also with, uh, with troops. Um, and uh, particularly if you saw it in the sort of really multinational uh, framework, but in, very importantly as well, you'd need to the U.S. The US as to sort of galvanize that of not saying, hey, but then suddenly we're leaving, because then you could also have so the opposite effect of basically have particularly you have other Arab countries, further sort of sectarian uh, tendencies be reinforced be the, and rather than sort of stabilizing uh, force, which was sort of the idea to bring the regime to the table of saying 30%, which is now sort of the SDF-controlled territories are not under your control. They're not going to return until um, there is a sort of uh, a political uh, solution. Mike? Yeah, I agree with that, but not just the sectarian issues, or even primarily. There's also the political issues, and the Egyptians are not on the same page with the uh, with the Saudis about Syria, for example. Um, and my 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 inclination would be to focus on uh, would be to focus on building up local forces, 
that can that, that can that can actually that can actually control the area uh, and stabilize the area, um, and so that when the United States leaves, there will be something to be uh, to left left behind. We're because of our great ambivalence about Syria, we're and, and about nation building. We are disinclined to to build up the alternative to ourselves, um, but I think that's what it that's what it takes. And so I would I, my tendency would be to put the emphasis on military effectiveness over political. Uh, um, so I mean the Emirati special forces and the Jordanian special forces; those are uh, militarily effective uh, uh, militarily effective units that uh, uh, that work well in coordination with Americans. Uh, is proven by other in other theaters. So uh, maybe use of those kinds of forces if you can convince the, the 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 Jordanians. But the real the real issue is not holding the territory. Holding the territory in the middle of Euphrates River Valley is important. But the you, you will never get out of the Russians and the Iranians what we want if we don't start threatening that to take stuff away from them in what they call vital Syria. Um. I had promised one more here, then one last here, and we have to, uh, within one minute. So it's a short question, and we'll have short answers from up here. Uh, Stephen Morris, uh, just wondering, uh, given the fact that um, the, that Trump has two incompatible ambitions in Syria, one is to get out, and the other is to stop Iranian influence spreading. Uh, shouldn't that uh, contradiction be uh, brought forward more often uh, in discussions? Number one. And my second question is, if it's in our interest, and it seems from everything that's been said today, to stay in Syria for various reasons, uh, <coughs> might not we also consider strengthening our position in Syria by surface-to-air missiles, for example, in the Kurdish zone, um, and maybe even if there is a further offensive against Idlib to uh, launch airstrikes against Hezbollah? Against, from whom the U.S. has a blood debt of at least 241 Marines? Well, I can say to the first part of the question that that's precisely what we've done today. That's what's in my paper as well, is basically highlighting some of the contradictions there is in this, around this decision and that Mike eloquently laid out as well. So that's really been part of, of what we do here in a, in a, in a think tank of, of saying here are some of the things that sort of clash in developing a full-fledged uh, Syria strategy. I don't know if anybody else wants to... Uh, jump in on uh, attacking Hezbollah. I just don't. I just don't see us doing that um, be, uh, because of the. I mean, the distance between where we are right now and that step is so great. There are so many intermediate steps that um, that I, I'd, I'd like to see us just do some of those intermediate steps. Yeah. One, one final comment is, is to Mike's comment about without threatening the Iranians and the Russians, we're going to take things away from them. Um, so the attack in the resort, which was quite a defense step, step by the U.S., but also the anti-aircraft missile that appeared out of the sudden in Idlib and brought down one of the Russian jets, and then the drone attacks on the Russian aircraft sitting in Hmamim Air Base that destroyed eight of those aircrafts without really costing much in a small drone. Usually it's kind of attributed to the U.S. or pro-U.S. forces on the ground, which is um, one of the steps basically could be if the U.S. still believe in a moderate forces is to arm some of those forces in Idlib and help them defend Idlib against the Russians as a, a checkpoint to the, Russians, to the Russians that we're here. You're not getting all that you want. Any last observations? Should stay. 
on that note, the question of uh, sort of the, the class theme sort of uh, uh, panel that we had today, should I stay or should I go now, uh, of course has really uh, relevance, I think as everybody here had shown and, and sort of shown many of the different reasons. I'm not completely certain that even with all our good arguments that had we sat at the National Security Council whether we would have convinced Trump yet uh, about all these sort of um, uh, good strategic reasons for, uh, for really uh, staying on or for even taking on an expanded role in Syria. But it's, um, it's a question that's going to sort of uh, stay on all of our minds, so um, uh, stay tuned. I wanted to end on a positive note uh, when we talk about Syria. So I, I thought actually, Mariam, when you brought out uh, the huge increase in civil society organizations that have sort of blossomed, even though there's been a war in Syria, I thought that's something positive as well to take away from uh, even under sort of these uh, conditions. And we mostly only hear about Syria as refugees, as war, as conflict, and uh, but at the same time, um, something beneath the surface of all that is still happening. So I thought that was a sort of good way to end. And then I want all of us to join me in thanking our panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.